Well, welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and the confusion stops here. Today we're going to, uh, well, a little later on, we're going to take a look at the four senses of Scripture, which is kind of a medieval way of looking at the Bible. And uh, if we have time, uh, examine a method to read the Scripture, either on your own or with your family in a fruitful way. And we're also going to revisit the reasons why the hosts here at VMPR uh, a while back voluntarily took the oath against modernism. And I'm going to reflect uh, on some of the more salient points contained therein. But first, you may recall at the end of last week's program, I rattled off the Ten Commandments of Chivalry and said we'd be talking about them. And we're going to do that, but uh, kind of one at a time and in a way that uh, fits with whatever we're talking about. And I should mention that the the Ten Commandments of Chivalry, this, this kind of accepted list, comes from a classic book that was simply called Chivalry. It was published in 1883 by a French Catholic author named Léon Gautier. And, you know, he tells us that the golden age of chivalry really began with the Crusades, with uh, the common cause of European Catholic knights to rescue the holy places from Muslim domination and to defend the pilgrims who were traveling to the Holy Land. And then I would mention that nine of the knights of the First Crusade decided to remain in Jerusalem uh, to live in community as kind of a standing force to continue to protect pilgrims that uh, took on a religious character. They lived like monks in the cloister, singing the divine office and, you know, living a life of prayer and work, but went to battle when necessary. And, of course, they became known as the Knights Templar. And St. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote a rule of life for them based on the Cistercian rule, which really became the basis of what we understand as Christian chivalry. And Gautier summarized the ancient code of chivalry from various medieval sources, and his Ten Commandments of Chivalry have kind of become the gold standard in uh, representing the duties of a chivalrous medieval knight and uh, a virtuous man today. Now, naturally, being medieval and European in origin, the Code of Chivalry is intimately bound up with the Catholic faith. Hence, the first commandment of chivalry, thou shalt believe all the Church teaches and shalt observe all its directions. I'll put a link to the Ten Commandments of Chivalry in the show notes for today. But right now, I want to zero in on one of Gautier's Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment of chivalry, which is, thou shalt love the country in which thou wast born. This is patriotism, and patriotism is a virtue, a Catholic virtue. You know, I'm afraid that a a good many Catholics in this country might be surprised uh, to hear that, but they shouldn't be because the virtue of patriotism falls under the virtue, the moral virtue of piety, which is also a gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, and the foundation of piety is the fourth commandment of the Decalogue, Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. So patriotism is a form of piety. And it includes, you know, honor for those who have gone before and includes the very important element of gratitude. You know, if you love your country because of all that it has done for you, that's patriotism. If you recognize that your country uh, isn't perfect, but desire to make it better, okay, that devotion is, is patriotism. Um, and, and that's a chivalrous virtue. But patriotism is distinct from what we call nationalism. See, the nationalist loves his country just because it's his. The cry of the nationalist is, you know, my country, right or wrong. 
So therefore, the, the nationalist love of country is <laughs> irrational. Uh, somebody said once that a, a patriot loves his country and a nationalist hates everybody else's, right? And this is a defect, definitely not a, a chivalrous virtue. And yet, the mainstream media today uh, often, I mean regularly, refer to American patriots as nationalists and increasingly as uh, white supremacists, regardless of the color of their skin, uh, just as they refer to violent insurgents as peaceful protesters. Now, you might not be surprised to learn that the Associated Press, which is a major, maybe the major source for disseminating news stories around the world, has a style book. And, and that determines which words in which contexts are acceptable to them and which are not. Um, for example, a person who is for the wholesale slaughter of the unborn is not pro-abortion or anti-life, they're pro-choice. Uh, you know, as though the killing of babies doesn't enter into the question. But a person who decries abortion as a sin against the fifth commandment is not, therefore, pro-life, but anti-abortion or against a woman's right to choose, as though, again, the, the choice in question didn't involve killing a baby. Simply put, if you're a journalist and, uh, you know, you refer to what the Associated Press calls peaceful protesters as, you know, violent insurgents, if you don't conform to their, you know, uh, vocabulary, your piece is not going to be carried over the AP wire, and it's not going to go to the various news services, which obviously is a strong incentive for journalists to conform to the Associated Press's peculiar lexicon. But for our purposes here, words have meanings, like patriot and nationalist, as well as protester and rioter and, and insurgent. Okay, what, what, is, what is a protester? This is something that's on everybody's mind. Now, in this context, when we're talking about a protest, uh, we're talking about a public expression of uh, objection or disapproval or uh, dissent towards some idea or action, typically a political one. And protests can take many different forms. I mean, it, it can be an individual statement or a mass demonstration. And I would say clearly whatever good uh, protests can accomplish has long been exhausted in, you know, Kenosha and Portland and Seattle uh, at all. And so what about the nightly violence? Is it fair to call the participants rioters? And again, we, we define a riot as a form of civil disorder uh, commonly characterized by some group lashing out in a violent public disturbance against authority or property or people. And, you know, riots typically involve the destruction of property. And the property targeted kind of varies depending upon the riot and the inclination of those involved. And this sounds more accurate, certainly, than peaceful protester. But I think we, we typically understand a riot as something more or less spontaneous, uh, a kind of mob violence that, that breaks out in a crowd, you know, through a rush of emotion. And so I think that, you know, a rioter, that's also insufficient because the nightly violence that we're talking about is calculated and premeditated. So in my opinion, the, the correct term would be insurgent or violent insurgent because, well, an insurgency is a violent rebellion, a rebellion against authority. It's an act of rising up against, um, you know, in, rising up in a vigorous and committed revolt. 
And that's what's going on night after night in these pre-planned and, and organized attacks that have the stated purpose, by the way, of overthrowing the local authority and the ultimate girl, uh, goal of, quote-unquote, burning down the whole system. So this is certainly not an act of patriotism. And it doesn't proceed from, <clears throat> from gratitude or, or love of country, but from ingratitude and hatred. It's not a virtuous act. On the contrary, it's treasonous. And while insurgent isn't a nice word, I can think of a lot worse words to call them. And even worse still to apply to the politicians in those various cities who have forsworn their oaths of office by aiding these lawless insurgencies and failing to protect their own citizens and their property. Now, even before the nightly riots began, um, you know, even before George Floyd, there was one particular act of insurgency that has been encouraged and even aided and abetted by such treasonous politicians, and that is the destruction of public statues. Um, and we're going to be talking later on in the program about the stupidity of tearing down things that you don't understand or, or fail to appreciate. But for now, and again, this is within the context of the commandments of chivalry, to love the country of your birth. You know, I think it's well to discover why, why we raise public statues in the first place. And I'll give you a hint. It doesn't have anything to do with racism, systemic or otherwise. It has to do with admiration. Admiration, simply put, is the appreciation of another's good. Admiration recognizes objective good in others and, and rejoices in the recognition. And of course, you know, and we're all sinners. Everyone has good and bad qualities. But admiration is not about the celebration of somebody's faults or the foibles of their private life. To admire someone is to see their talent or success or virtue as good and good for both of us. Because there's, there's no question of competition. The more good someone has, the more there is to admire. And another's good makes the world better, and it opens our minds to the pursuit of excellence. Admiration can inspire us to try and attain the good ourselves. You know, we wish that we had the good that we admire, but we're glad that even if we don't have it, somebody does. So that's why you build a statue, because of good qualities that you admire and to which you aspire. But why do you tear one down? And the answer is envy, which is resentment of another's good. Envy also recognizes the objective good, but it's angered, it's pained by that recognition. To envy another's good is to want that good for yourself, but to resent the fact that someone else has it. To be envious is to see someone else's talent or success or virtue as somehow diminishing you. He wishes that the other person did not possess the good in question. And the envious are in competition with others, and the only way their position can improve is to work hard and strive to attain the good themselves, or, or to have the other person lose it, or have it taken from them. And having another fail is much easier than working hard to succeed yourself. So the envious wish they had the good in question, success, talent, virtue, fame, but they also wish that if they can't have it, the other person doesn't either. And that is the politics of envy. And that is the heart of Marxism and of all socialist movements. And that's what's going on in those cities night after night. And that's why they started by tearing down statues of men and women who are worthy of admiration. And that is no nonsense. Back with more and the Oath Against Modernism when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this.
Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eyes to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code VMPR to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com Code VMPR Live Porn Free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. According to Pope St. John XXIII, it is not true that some human beings are by nature superior and others inferior. All human beings are equal in their natural dignity. May God help us to look upon everyone as a person created in His image and likeness and treat everyone the same without favoritism or prejudice. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet source for keep it simple Catholicism. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And before we get into our next topic, I just wanted to um, say that I'm kind of uh, backed up in my personal correspondence, and so if you are waiting for a response, if you sent me a question, you're waiting for a response to an email or something, please be patient. I normally take care of that stuff on the weekend, and unfortunately, this uh, Saturday afternoon, I had to take my son, Sean, to the hospital, and he wound up having an emergency appendectomy um, at about midnight on Saturday, and obviously we were there on Sunday as well, so um, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting to it, but it's, it's taking longer than usual. So please be patient. Uh, and kindly, uh, if you think to offer up a prayer for Sean for his quick recovery, we'd appreciate that as well. Now, uh, if you've been to our website, the Virgin Most Powerful Radio website, vmpr.org, you may have noticed a tab on the homepage that says Oath Against Modernism. And I wanted to revisit why we uh, put that up in the first place for the benefit of uh, newer listeners or or anybody who just missed it the first time. Um, Back at the end of the 19th and 20th centuries, Blessed Pius IX and Pope St. Pius X warned the Catholic faithful about certain modern philosophical and theological errors 
which dangerously undermined the Catholic faith, and which they identified as modernism, the synthesis of all heresies. Now, consequently, Pope Pius IX issued the Syllabus of Errors in December 8 of uh, 1864 as an annex to the encyclical Quanta Cura, and then in 1907, Pope St. Pius X issued a special decree, Lamentabili Sane, and a special encyclical, Pescendi Dominici Gregis, in which he systematically exposed and very clearly refuted and quite officially anathematized the errors of modernism. Now, notwithstanding, some in the Church continued to promote the modernist cause, and so on September the 1st of 1910, Pius X published the Oath Against Modernism. And this oath was imposed on all seminarians before their um, ordination to major orders, all professors of philosophy and theology in seminaries and Catholic universities, and all confessors, pastors, preachers, and religious superiors. So from the time of its publication in 1910, this oath was taken by all the Catholic clergy until the coming of the Second Vatican Council when it was abrogated. Now, not surprisingly, the modernist clergy, who had previously remained uh, underground, so to speak, came out of the closet at Vatican II with their novel theories and their pernicious errors regarding scripture and tradition and the liturgy and even the very doctrines of the faith itself, which puts one in mind of the words of St. Paul to Timothy. Preach the word, be urgent in season, out of season, reprove, entreat, rebuke with all patience and teaching, for there will come a time when they will not endure the sound doctrine, but having itching ears will heap up to themselves teachers according to their own lusts and they will turn away their hearing from the truth and turn aside, rather, to fables. That's Second Timothy 4, 2 through 4. Now, when Terry Barber asked me to get involved in Virgin Most Powerful Radio, I was inspired to, to take the oath myself and to encourage others to do the same. Now, this oath was not conceived of for lay people, and it's no longer mandatory for priests or, or professors. Uh, so the first thing we did was to consult our spiritual director, uh, spiritual advisor, on the question whether it is legitimate for a lay person to voluntarily take this oath, as some priests, for example, of the Fraternity of St. Peter still do. And he said yes, and so I declared my intention to do just that, and when I told Terry, um, he liked the idea. He suggested that all the hosts at Virgin Most Powerful take the oath, and, and that we make it available to our listeners, that we put it up on the website so that they can do the same. And you can check it out vmpr.org, and, and, you know, if you want, you can take the oath yourself, and even, you know, there's a little place where you can, uh, you know, put your name in a box and let us know that you've taken it, that you've taken a stand against modernism in your own life, which, of course, is the beginning of the restoration of the Church. All the successful renewal movements in, in Catholic history have started with the laity. Now, uh, why go to such great lengths? Now, in order to appreciate the devastating effects of modernism on the church, I thought it would be well to reflect on the oath itself and uh, well, parts of it. I mean, it's too long to do a detailed analysis, but, but to look at what it reveals about the synthesis of heresies by what the oath both affirms and by what it rejects. You know, to begin with, the oath makes it apparent that modernism takes various forms. Uh, some modernists are agnostics that deny God, that deny, deny his very existence or or that his essence can be known by human reason. 
Some would deny the external proofs of divine revelation, uh, that is, miracles and prophecies. Uh, many modernists hold to dogmatic relativism, which is the concept that, uh, that there's a continual evolution of doctrines and dogmas from their original sense to, to something entirely new and different. Um, many moderns, modernists also have a false concept of faith itself, which they call by the term vital imminence, which suggests that faith is not an intellectual response. It's not, it's not an act of the intellect and will, which are the spiritual faculties of man. We're not, we're not responding to God who is outside of us, but, it, but it's an, just an interior feeling, a sentiment of religion that, which originates in our own uh, human subconscious. Now, the first part of the Oath Against Modernism is a strong affirmation of some basic Catholic truths that are opposed to such agnosticism. Number one, that God's existence can be known by human reason. Two, that miracles and prophecies are certain criteria of divine revelation. Three, that the institution of the Church by Christ is an historical fact. Four, the immutable character of Catholic doctrine. Five, that it's both reasonable... Faith is both reasonable and has a supernatural character. So faith and reason go together, work together. Now, these are all obviously Catholic teachings, but the fact that they needed to be sworn to tells you about what the modernists were up to and what they were rejecting. So, so the oath begins, I profess that God, the origin and end of all things, can be known with certainty by the natural light of reason from the created world, that is, from visible works of creation, as a cause from its effects, and that, therefore, his existence can also be demonstrated. Secondly, I accept and acknowledge the external proofs of revelation, that is, divine acts, and especially miracles and prophecies, as the surest signs of the divine origin of the Christian religion. And I hold that these same proofs are well adopted to the understanding of all eras and all men, even of this time. Right? Even the special snowflake we know as modern man can understand the proofs for the existence of God. I think the real question is, how can some modernists deny our ability to know the existence of God? You know, when it's self-evident that the physical universe demands an intelligent and eternal and infinite being as its cause. You know, to say, I believe God created the world, this is a state of, statement of reason, not faith. How can some uh, modernists deny that miracles and prophecies of the Bible, when they've been demonstrated with such convincing proofs and, and, and testimony and so many contemporary witnesses that chose to die rather than deny them? You know, from these, just these first two articles of the oath, I can see how modernism seeks to replace objective truth and concrete evidence, even that which is self-evident, for purely subjective and sometimes even contradictory theories. It's like St. Paul said, they will not endure sound doctrine, but will heap up to themselves teachers according to their own lusts and turn aside, rather, to fables. Now, the third and fourth points deal with uh, the very foundation of the church by Christ and the immutability, the unchanging nature of the doctrines taught by Christ and the apostles and then faithfully handed on by their successors. Um, here it is. Thirdly, I believe with equally firm faith that the church, 
the guardian and teacher of the revealed word was personally instituted by the real and historical Christ when he lived among us, and that the church was built upon Peter, the prince of the apostolic hierarchy and his successors for the duration of time. Fourthly, I sincerely hold that the doctrine of faith was handed down to us from the apostles through the Orthodox fathers in exactly the same meaning and always in the same purport, that is, same intent or objective uh, or purpose. Therefore, I entirely reject the heretical misrepresentation that dogmas evolve and change from one meaning to another, different from the one the church held previously, which, by the way, is the infallible teaching of Vatican I. Now, we can understand doctrines uh, more deeply over time, but never in a way that contradicts their original meaning. And, and I understand why non-believers might not be moved by the authority of the Catholic Church, but why would a Catholic priest or a theologian refuse to take such an oath? And it's because, of course, that modernists hold that the doctrines of the Church have evolved. From age to age, just as they say the Church itself has evolved and, and, and is still evolving and will continue to evolve until the end of time. You know, when we might not recognize it at all. So, therefore, according to modernism, the truths taught by Christ and faithfully preserved and defended and expounded by the Catholic Church year after year and century after century for two millennia must all of a sudden be brought up with the times. This is the time when suddenly we have to get with the times. And I, this is the kind of thinking, I suspect, that led a, a rather progressive young priest to tell me, all the way back in 1998, he said, you should never read anything written before Vatican II. Now, I had not been Catholic very long, and so I hope I can be forgiven my rather sarcastic response. I just said to him, well, Father, does that apply to the Bible? Because, you know, the Bible was written before Vatican II. Now, not very respectful. Uh, if I'm confronted with the same situation today, as I have been, I would simply say, I read old books because I would rather learn from those who built Christian civilization than from those who are tearing it down. The divine truths taught by Christ, the deposit of faith carefully preserved by the Catholic Church with the divine, assistant of, the divine assistance of the Holy Ghost, have no expiration date. They don't change uh, with the, the, the passing of time or, or the mere change of circumstances. Because that would make nonsense of Christ's command to his apostles to teach all nations to observe everything whatsoever I have commanded you. As well as his promise to be with the church all days, even to the consummation of the world. The oath against modernism clearly identifies this error and thus presents us with the Catholic concept of faith, which is the fifth uh, article in the Oath Against Modernism, and that's where we'll pick up when we return. You're listening or watching, if you're on YouTube, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Also, later on in the program, I'm going to talk about the four senses of Scripture, and uh, if we have time, maybe a method that you can use to apply them to your own personal Bible reading. All that and more when we return right after this.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. If you shop on Amazon.com, there's an easy way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just visit smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center under the desired charity. Now, when you log into your Amazon account and purchase products, a portion of it will automatically go to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio at no cost to you. Thanks in advance for supporting CRC and VMPR, and may God richly bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. <laughs> okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Hey, by the way, coming up next month, the 7th of November, we're going to have another of our virtual conferences. And this one is going to be um, made up of the videos that I did, the for St. Joseph Communications, the um, What Every Catholic Needs to Know series. So we're going to have What Every Catholic Needs to Know About the Bible, and What Every Catholic Needs to Know About Mary, What Every Catholic Needs to Know About uh, the Pope, What Every Catholic Needs to Know About Hell. And um, I think they're, they're, you know, it's, they've been really, you know, kind of perennial bestsellers. Uh, they're, they're certainly evergreen. It's, it's information that will never go out of style. These are the, the immutable truths of the Catholic faith. And I think that, you know, they're well presented, and uh, if I do say so myself, and I certainly had a lot of help, uh, these videos feature Scott Hahn and Tim Staples and Jess Romero and uh, Dr. Michael Barber and Dr. Brant Petrie, and, and the one on hell also has um, uh, Father Bill Casey, Father Shannon Collins, uh, Barbara McGuigan, Steve Ray, Deacon Alex Jones. Okay, so a real uh, array, kind of stellar array of the world of Catholic apologetics and theology. So they're very much worth your time. And it's going to be free on YouTube. It's a, uh, it's a YouTube event uh, starting at 9 o'clock in the morning Pacific time on the 7th of November. So mark your calendar and uh, come check it out. 
All right. Uh, talking about the oath against modernism, and we've gone over the first uh, four points that I wanted to bring up, uh, that God can be known by human reason, God's existence, uh, that miracles and prophecies are certain criteria of divine revelation, that the institution of the church by Christ is an historical fact, and number four, the immutable, the unchanging character of Catholic doctrine. And now, um, number five, point five, which identifies uh, the, the Catholic concept of faith. Fifthly, I hold with certainty and sincerely confess that faith is not a blind sentiment of religion welling up from the depths of the subconscious under the impulse of the heart and the motion of a will trained to morality. But faith, and that's the definition of this vital eminence, but faith is a genuine assent of the intellect to truth received by hearing from an external source. By this assent, because of the authority of the supremely truthful God, we believe to be true that which has been revealed and attested to by a personal God, our Creator and Lord. Again, this should not be controversial for, for any Catholic, and yet the modernists would deny it. You know, we see how they, once again, how the modernists veer uh, and depart from objective truth and veer into the realm of the subjective. You know, when faith is reduced to mere, um, what does it say, sentiment of religion welling up from the depths of the subconscious, which is known as vital imminence, then, then everyone, including all non-Catholics, can be sit- considered to have faith. You know, not just the Protestants and Jews or even Muslims, but, you know, but Hindus, polytheists, Buddhists, uh, witch doctors, voodoo priests, snake worshippers. According to the modernists, since they all have this interior sentiment of religion, they therefore have faith. You see, but, but for a Catholic, the theological virtue of faith applies to supernatural faith, which is both a response to, to truth revealed from an external source and also a gift of the Holy Ghost, infused into the soul you know, at baptism and, and not conjured up by the individual subconscious, which is idolatry. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. And no expiration date on the Ten Commandments. Now, the oath uh, against modernism goes on to deal with other modernist errors, um, of which I'd like to mention especially the false interpretation of sacred scripture, and only because it's so common. The oath says, Likewise, I reject that method of judging and interpreting sacred scripture, which, departing from the tradition of the church, the analogy of faith, that is to say the Apostles' Creed, and the norms of the apostolic see, right, so the magisterial decisions of the church, embraces the misinterpretations of the rationalists and with no prudence or restraint adopts textual criticism as the one and supreme norm. Not saying textual criticism doesn't have its place, but it's not the, you know, it's not the objective rule by which you judge all of Scripture. Uh, You know, and it's not difficult, unfortunately, to find even priests and theologians today who openly deny uh, biblical accounts of, say, the creation or original sin or the flood or the miracles of Jesus. I mean, even the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000. You know, what you discover is that modernists in reality deny the divine in- inspiration of, of the sacred scripture. You know, we've talked before about the so-called uh, synoptic problem and how Bible scholars have 
multiplied a, a plethora of, of hypothetical documents and, and uh, envisioned this editorial evolution of the Gospels over a century or more, for which there is not a single shred of historical evidence. And yet they would call this historical and critical, this method. Uh, according to St. Pius X, indeed, this history, right, this, this history of this supposed textual evolution of the Bible, the modernists do actually write, and with such an easy security that one might believe them to have with their own eyes seen the writers at work throughout the ages amplifying the sacred books. The point being, of course, that they didn't witness that, nor is there any concrete evidence for it. So the oath against, modernist, uh, against modernism teaches something important about the contemporary church. After Vatican II, there was a great deal of destruction. And, and many important things were torn down to make way for the new and the novel, and not just altars and communion rails, not just statues and stained glass. The emergence of a, a new theology and a new morality and new Bible translations and new paradigms and even a new order of the Mass was interpreted to mean that the traditional uh, theology and the traditional morality and the traditional translation of Scripture and the traditional paradigms and the traditional Mass were obsolete, that they had to be abandoned or discarded and torn down. Don't read anything written before Vatican II, like the priest told me. But those involved in this destruction, and that includes a lot of you know, people that just went along, they often carried out these, what I would consider acts of vandalism, if not sins of impiety, apparently without even trying to understand why things were the way they were in the first place. You know, let's take communion in the hand just as an example. I know I, I mentioned this before, but it, it's pertinent. It was maintained back in the 1970s that, that introducing the reception of communion in the hand was not overturning the tradition of the church, but really it was a restoration of a practice from the early church. Now, the definition of tradition is uh, semper et ubique et omnia, that which has been done always and everywhere by everyone. But there isn't a shred of historical evidence, even that which they bring forth to, to, to show that communion in the hand you know, was a thing. There, there's, there's no evidence that it was a universal practice, that it was the common practice in the church. And, and even if communion in the hand was the universal practice in the early church, well, that means that at some point it was abandoned, nay, suppressed, everywhere throughout the church, both east and west, for more than a thousand years. And if it was suppressed, there must have been reasons put forth for changing the universal practice of the church. But as with the alleged practice itself, there isn't a shred of evidence for this suppression. And I dare suggest that's likely because there was nothing to suppress. What we know for sure is that communion in the hand was introduced uh, as a modern practice in the 16th century by the Protestant reformers. And they tried to justify the change with the, with the same specious argument of, well, that's how they did it in the early church. But really, they introduced communion in the hand to deny the difference between the common priesthood of the baptized and the ministerial priesthood, and thereby destroy uh, belief in both the grace of holy orders and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. 
In the 20th century, then, this same practice was foisted on the Catholic faithful, who never asked for it, by the way. Uh, most of the folks that I know who were around at the time say they had to be forced into it. So communion in the hand, while, while officially introduced as an option, was virtually mandated throughout the Western Church without even bothering to ask the question, why was communion always and everywhere received only on the tongue in the first place? Furthermore, since Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the Vatican II document on the sacred liturgy, stated that any change in liturgical practice must proceed organically from some definite need. So why was it suddenly necessary to change the, the millennial practice of the universal church? Now, I suspect there's more than one answer, but none of them have anything to do with history or restoration or any hint of authentic necessity. So how to understand this? Well, I would consider the words of G.K. Chesterton. He said, Suppose that a great commotion arises in the street about something, let's say a lamppost, which many influential persons desire to pull down. A gray-clad monk who is the spirit of the Middle Ages is approached upon the matter and begins to say in the arid manner of the schoolmen, Let us first of all consider, my brethren, the value of light. If light in itself be good, and at this point he is somewhat excusably knocked down. All the people make a rush for the lamppost, and the lamppost is down in ten minutes, and they go about congratulating each other on their unmedieval practicality. But as things go on, they do not work out so easily. Some people have pulled on the lamppost because they wanted the electric light. Some because they wanted the old iron. Some because they wanted darkness, because their deeds were evil. Some thought it not enough of a lamppost, and some too much. Some acted because they wanted to smash municipal machinery, and some because they just wanted to smash something. And there is war in the night, no man knowing whom he strikes. So gradually and inevitably, today, tomorrow, or the next day, there comes back the conviction that the monk was right after all, and that all depends on what is the philosophy of light. Only what we might have discussed under the gas lamp, we must now discuss in the dark. Modernism has within it the seeds of its own defeat because it can only destroy. It cannot build. And we'll talk about what that means when we come back. Also, the four senses of Scripture and uh, how to apply them. That more when we come back with the uh, final segment of No-Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us. We got Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest. I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, you know, (laughs) you know, yeah, that's right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this. I just want to call all the people, you know, I got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta, we have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the divine mercy chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 
30 years old, 29 years old, five kids, and I thank you guys. But everybody else, man, get on fire. Fight for the truth, man. I know what I'm telling you guys. There's I so love it. Out there. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you with us. As I was saying uh, before the break, just to wrap up our discussion on the oath against modernism, I said modernism carries within it the seed of its own defeat because it can only destroy. It cannot build. And why do I say that? And the reason is that modernism represents a multitude of conflicting opinions. While traditional Catholicism, what I call no-nonsense Catholicism, represents uh, specific and certain convictions. And in the words of uh, Heinrich Heine, who you're not going to hear me quote very often, what he said, medieval men had convictions, whereas we moderns only have opinions. And you need more than an opinion to build a Gothic cathedral. And that's why those of us who have realized that, that Chesterton's medieval monk was right and are endeavoring to rebuild the edifice that should never have been torn down in the first place. That is why we alone represent the only sector of the Catholic Church that's growing instead of withering. And that is no nonsense. Okay, and finally today, I wanted to talk about the four senses of Scripture. You know, we talked in the last segment about how the modernists in the Church have kind of taken the historical, critical interpretation of Scripture as their very own and almost you know, exclusive of, of anything else. It, it dominates in, in seminaries and universities and, and Catholic Bible study materials. And yet, the Catechism of the Catholic Church offers us instead the medieval guide to interpretation known as the four senses of Scripture. And really, there's, there's two general senses of Scripture, the, the literal and the spiritual, but then the spiritual is broken down into uh, three subcategories. And there is a medieval couplet that puts it well. Letera gesta docet, quid credes allegoria, moralis quidages, quotendas anagogia. The letter speaks of deeds, allegory to faith, 
the moral how to act, anagogy, our destiny, and that is our eternal destiny. Now, the literal sense from the Latin litera or letter is the meaning conveyed just by the, the actual words of Scripture uh, that are discovered by following the, the rules of sound interpretation, which is called exegesis. St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that all other senses of Scripture are dependent upon the literal. And what that means is that an authentic spiritual reading of this, any particular passage of Scripture must not contradict the literal sense. Now, the literal sense, though, depends on discerning what kind of literature we're reading. We think of the Bible as a book, but it's really a library, uh, and it contains history and poetry and wisdom literature and prophecy and, and personal letters and, and what we would call open letters. Even, I would say, you know, the, the letters of First uh, and Second Peter are kind of proto-papal encyclicals. And they're all inspired by God. But you cannot approach them all in the same way. So think about a newspaper. You know, if, if you don't read the front page news the same way you read an op-ed piece or, or the sports page or the funnies. The news story is supposed to be straight reporting. Uh, so it lays out the facts without bias, and then you should be able to interpret those facts for yourself. That's, that's the way it's supposed to work. Uh, an op-ed piece, on the other hand, is an, uh, a matter of opinion based on the author's interpretation of the facts. And then the sports page is a more or less entertaining combination of reporting and analysis that is, uh, you know, traditionally em employs these over-the-top headlines. So, for example, if you open the sports page and you read a headline that says Redskins Massacre Cowboys, you would know that that means that Washington beat Dallas in a professional football game, not that there was a violent Indian uprising out west. You know, or you think of poetry. Poetry can often communicate deep subjects in, in a few lines that say more than the most comprehensive prose. When the poet writes, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. My love is like a melody that's sweetly sung in tune. He says a lot more than, you know, the girl I like is young and has a nice personality. So <laughs> that's the literal sense has to be discerned. Now, the spiritual sense tells us, thanks to the unity of God's plan, that not only the text of Scripture, but also the realities and events about which it speaks can be signs of other, even greater realities. As someone once said, God writes with history the way that we write with words. And so you have, first amongst the spiritual senses, the allegorical sense. Uh, we can acquire a more profound uh, understanding of Old Testament events by recognizing their significance in Christ, their fulfillment in Christ. So, for example, crossing the Red Sea is a sign or a type of Christ's victory over sin. And it's also a, a sign of Christian baptism. Now, because the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament types and figures, there's an old saying, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old contained, the old is in the new explained. And this is the sense of Scripture that most heavily influenced uh, medieval uh, Bible interpretation and also other medieval literature. 
So we have stories like the Quest of the Holy Grail and you know stories of King Arthur that are allegories for the spiritual life. All right. So the allegorical sense. Next is the, <clears throat> pardon me, the moral sense. So the events in Scripture teach us by example and sometimes by exhortation how to uh, act justly. Right? Teaches us how and encourages us to act justly. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, they were written for our instruction. And then number three is the anagogical sense from the Greek anagoge, which means leading. And, and in this sense, we review, or we view uh, realities and events in the Scripture in terms of their eternal significance. You know, what does this have to do with my eternal destiny? How does this lead me towards my true homeland? And thus the church on earth, the catechism says, is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem. In the dogmatic constitution on the uh, word of God from Vatican II, Dei Verbum, it says, and I quote, it is the task of exegetes, right, biblical interpreters, to work according to these rules towards a better understanding and explanation of the meaning of sacred scripture in order that their research may help the church to form a firmer judgment. For, of course, all that has been said about the manner of interpreting scripture is ultimately subject to the judgment of the church, which exercises the divinely conferred commission and ministry of watching over and interpreting the word of God. As St. Augustine said, I would not believe in the gospel had not the authority of the Catholic Church already moved me. And I would hasten to add a final note. As lay people, obviously it is not up to us to interpret the scriptures for ourselves in matters of doctrine. You don't say, hey, uh, I found this thing in Scripture, so that justifies me doing this thing that's against the teaching of the Church. <laughs> Sorry, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, if, if, and if you discover, discover something like that, uh, either your translation's faulty or your interpretation is, okay? Uh, but Catholics are highly encouraged to uh, engage regularly in what we might call the existential reading of Scripture, and that employs the four senses of Scripture, but with the purpose of reading and meditating on and praying with the words of the Bible in order to apply what you read to your own personal life. Because it's only through application that the Bible becomes a living word. It becomes for us God's word today. Now, traditionally, the most effective way to, to approach the Bible for Catholics are, are the liturgy. Uh, and not just the readings, daily readings of Holy Mass, but also the divine office or Liturgy of the Hours, uh, that and the practice of Lexio Divina, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I, first I wanted to, again, as, as I have so many times, recommend the Liturgy of the Hours, because not only do you have Scripture readings, and, and the basis of, of the Divine Office is the Psalms, not only do you have that, the Psalms, these are you know, songs of praise that are inspired by God, and really cover all the various human emotions. But then you also have the prayers of the church, and you have the canticles from the New Testament, and you have readings for each day uh, from other parts of the Bible, you know, typically the New Testament. And you have 
prayers and petitions that were you know, composed by the church specifically to help you tie it all together. This is a fantastic means of coming to understand the Bible and how the different parts of it relate to one another, as is the, uh, the lectionary. You know, the, even the, the Novus Ordo Musae, um, the, the Sunday lectionary, on a typical, and it doesn't always work out perfectly, but, but typically you have, you know, the Old Testament type in the first reading, and then you have, uh, you know, this, the, the responsorial psalm, where you pray in a way from the Scripture that, that relates and then you have a New Testament reading, typically from the epistles of St. Paul, that's kind of a bridge to the gospel, which then shows the fulfillment of the Old Testament reading. And so, you, you know, it, again, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of built in. But then we have what we call Lectio Divina, which is an old way of reading the scriptures, been with the church for many, many centuries. Lectio Divina, um, it's Latin for divine reading. And it is a method of uh, reading and praying with the scriptures. Powerful method of scripture reading and meditation follows four steps. First, lectio, which is the reading, and then meditatio, meditation, contemplatio, which is contemplation, and then oratio, or prayer. And, you know, you can go to the USCCB website um, and download a PDF on Lectio Divina for lay people from from the U.S. bishops. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, But I know that the majority of the listeners of this program are men. And I wanted to share with you a personal method of Lexio Divina that's applicable to private, you know, personal, and also to family Bible reading. You know, so naturally, if you're not a husband and father, you can still benefit from this method of approaching Scripture. But if you are, then it really provides you a way to take your place as the spiritual head of the household without being a biblical scholar. And, of course, I hear the music playing, so we're going to have to uh, put a bookmark there, and we're going to save that for next week. So next week here on No Nonsense Catholic, tips for family Bible study, especially for dads. So you're going to want to tune in for that. Also, coming up on the 7th of November, we're going to have one of our special virtual conferences. It is the What Every Catholic Needs to Know conference. What Every Catholic Needs to Know About the Bible, About Mary about the Pope, and what every Catholic needs to know about hell. Hosted by yours truly and featuring Scott Hahn, Tim Staples, uh, Jess Romero, and a host of others. So uh, join us for that, and I'll see you next week. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were open to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.